On today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we bring on Dr. Michael Turner. Let's do this. My other quick point on sleep, besides we want it to be uninterrupted, is we want it to be shifted earlier in the night. That's really important, okay? Let's say seven hours of sleep. If you go to bed at 9 p.m., right, and you wake up at 4 a.m., that's seven hours of sleep. But that's not the same as if you go to bed at 1 a.m. and wake up at 8 a.m. You with me? Not even close. That front-loaded nighttime sleep is way more restorative, way more healthy. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. I'm excited to bring on Dr. Michael Turner, who has been in the space of health for many, many years. He's got quite the impressive credentials and background. He has treated over 10,000 patients since 2009, and we're going to extract all the golden nuggets uh, from him and his work. So we're going to get into his backstory and some of the things he's learned studying at Stanford University, Harvard Medical School, the Mayo Clinic, we get into a really important discussion on thyroid health and the T3 hormone, which is the active form of thyroid, how it's so important to have adequate levels of the T3 hormone. It tells every mitochondria to make energy. You're going to learn about that. You'll learn about TSH, T4, and the whole connection between the hypothalamus pituitary and thyroid gland and why a TSH alone is not going to give you the full picture. That's just showing you more so the communication, but not necessarily how your thyroid is functioning. We're going to get into his favorite tips for rapid weight loss. And when, I, when we say rapid weight loss, we're not saying we're focusing on weight loss. We're saying these are tips that are going to lower insulin, lower inflammation, and as a side effect, you'll lose weight fast. You'll hear about that. We'll talk about insulin. We'll talk about why it's important to eat adequate amounts of protein and fat. We'll talk about the benefits of intermittent fasting and different fasting strategies some insider tips on supplements and his favorite exercises, and so much more. So I cannot wait to bring him on. Before I do, I want to get to today's Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from Cordy Smith titled, Thank You. Ben Azadi is truly a mastermind in the understanding of a healthy keto lifestyle. After years of competing athletically, I was always focused on healthy carbs and low-fat food sources. I have overcome many challenges, but pushing to understand and implement keto is definitely one of them. Research for me is key. Lots of mistakes made along the way, feeling better daily and praying I am on track. My why is to strengthen my future cognition as I have watched my sweet mom struggle the last few years. Watching her decline is heart-wrenching and I will be relentless and proactive with keto now. Ben is truly available to help anyone who wants better overall health and helps us understand insulin resistance one day at a time. God bless you and Ben and the staff. So grateful for your passion to serve others. Cordy, I'm so grateful for you. I acknowledge you for taking a deep dive and taking ownership. I imagine it's so difficult seeing that with your mother. I, I saw that with my dad for years, his health decline, and eventually I lost my dad in August of 2014. I'm praying for healing for you. I'm praying for healing from your, for your mom. And I'm so grateful that you listened to the show. We'll continue showing up for you. Keep doing your research and keep taking action. If you have not left the Keto Camp podcast a rating or a review as of yet, please do so. It really helps the show grow. Maybe I'll give you a nice shout out and read your review on the next episode as well. Without further ado, let's dive deep into a fantastic conversation with Dr. Michael Turner. 
Dr. Turner is a graduate of Stanford University, Harvard Medical School, and the Mayo Clinic and has treated over 10,000 patients since 2009. He practices integrative medicine in his own national concierge practice, providing personalized approaches including hormones, sleep, recovery, nutrition, supplements, and exercise to help people achieve their optimal state of health. Called Genuine Caring and the Best Doctor in the World by Patients, he brings a high degree of empathy, trademark optimism, and a holistic care to patient care. As a 46-year-old father of five children and a CEO of his successful practice, he has challenged himself towards optimal health by successfully passing the Navy SEALs fitness test, which is one of the most difficult in the world. He's a former classroom teacher with a background in theater, and he's become a sought-after guest on multiple podcasts, spoken on national stages at national conferences, chaired workshops, and created workplace wellness programs. He's also the host of the Mana Podcast, which has 12,000 active subscribers to his blog on Substack. Here's Dr. Michael Turner. Dr. Michael Turner, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you, Ben. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're going to have some fun. Uh, You went to three prestigious schools. Um, You went to Harvard Medical School, the Mayo Clinic, and Stanford University, and I'm curious, like what even led down that path of studying health and nutrition and why did you want to explore that route? And then number two, uh, those are more conventionally trained approaches and you're more of integrative medicine. So how did that happen? Right. Well, great question. I grew up in California in the Bay Area with a pretty strong naturalistic emphasis just in the way that I was raised. My mom, for example, worked at a health food store in college. She, was, she went to Berkeley in the late 60s, early 70s. She was kind of had halfway one foot in the realm of being a hippie, let's just say, in a, politely, you know, no, nothing prerogative about that. But um, so, you know, when I was raised, minimal sugar in the house, I couldn't have sugary cereals, for example, I couldn't have Twinkies. There's this very famous story of me when I was five years old. I was obsessed with Twinkies because other kids could have this stuff and I never could. And so I got caught in the aisle of the supermarket, just tearing into this box of Twinkies. I, I escaped from my mom on purpose did my surveillance, went right to the Twinkie area, stared it down for a minute, and then just gave in and started tearing into this thing. My mom came and found me, made me apologize to the store owner, the whole thing. Also, as I was raised, you know, minimal TV, emphasis on getting outside, emphasis on reading books, that kind of thing. Uh, my mom refused to buy me video games, went my entire childhood. Nintendo came out, you know, Mike Tyson, Punch-Out, Contra, all this stuff, Tech Mobile, original stuff, N64, couldn't get it, you know, pain. Only time I could play the video games is I go to friends sleepover on the weekend or something, you know. So it was. Oh my gosh! (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then another pivotal event for me was high school. So sophomore year of high school, I took a health class, just public high school, regular Joe health class, nothing special, other than it pretty much kind of revolutionized my life towards health and wellness, right? So we were talking about physiology, different body systems, and I remember we were talking about you know the heart. Let's just say or the eyes, or your muscular system. And I remember being really fascinated and intrigued and thinking like, wow, this is kind of complicated and this is cool. I didn't know there was that much going on inside my body, right? It was like a a glimpse under the hood. You know, you're living in your body, but how much awareness do you really have of what's going on inside day to day, right? I had basically none at that time. So it was very eye-opening and encouraging kind of all at the same time. And I started thinking like, well, having good fitness with your heart and lungs is important. How do I do that, right? Strength training, getting more musculature, parenthesis, you know, high school vanity, wanting to impress girls and stuff like that. But, you know, how do I start training in a way that's going to, you know, put some little bulges on these biceps and stuff. And then one of the things that we did in the health class, we had to write down everything we ate in a day. And this was also very eye-opening. I had never done that in my life, right? Write down everything you ate, grams of fat, grams of sugar, all the ingredients on all the labels, right? And I was shocked, dismayed, right? Consternation because I'm looking at these labels. I'm like, oh my God, I had a Snickers bar. And you know, you know how much saturated fat that thing has and all this sugar and all these processed chemical things I can't even pronounce. Oh my gosh, you know. And then I had, you know, two chocolate milks on lunch break and I thought that was healthy. No, it's not. Those things are packed with sugar, right? Oh, and I had some orange juice this morning. Oh, that's not great. And you know, and I had two, you know, so after I just actually added up all that I ate one day, I was I was pretty surprised, shocked. It kind of scared me straight. So now imagine me, high school, 16 years old. I go, that's it. I'm making some changes, right? So I got a weight bench as a gift. And so I started lifting weights down the basement. 
I started running like two, three miles frequently, you know, almost every day. And we had hills in my area in California. So I was getting in great shape. I started eating clean. We didn't call it eating clean back then. That phrase didn't exist. We basically, I wasn't eating anything that had any kind of fat in it or any kind of sugar. So it was like tuna, oatmeal, beans, you know, whey protein shakes, stuff like that. I mean, dialed out, right? So I was always an athletic kid, but I was also a little bit chubby and I lacked some self-discipline. So that's, that's when this all turned around. And I went to like my lean, clean, you know, got down to my fighting weight, let's just say. And I was just kind of all dialed in. Now, I actually turned out to be a little excessive in high school. My mom had to moderate me back a little bit. That's another discussion. And then, you know, fast forward, I was blessed, had some opportunities to train at some of the best institutions. Um, I went to Stanford University for undergrad, studied human biology, awesome professors, awesome staff, you know, uh, actually worked as a school teacher for a couple of years after uh, undergrad and before med school, got accepted to Harvard, had a great experience, went to the Mayo Clinic, had a great experience. Uh, So then I started to just bring these two worlds together, right? Beginning in my own personal health and wellness journey, right? And I'm sort of an overachiever and obsessional about some things sometimes. And so I, I just got obsessional and have stayed that way about health. And the question is, the million dollar question in my mind is, what would it feel like to be as healthy as I could possibly be, right? What would that feel like? Am I living in that zone yet? And if not, what would that feel like? And what kind of benefit would that provide for me, right? And the world. Yeah. What would it feel like to just be the healthiest, best version of Michael Turner that I could be? And, you know, that that's a provocative question in my mind. And so that's driven me. So all the way through med school, I was considered a bit of an anomaly. You know, Harvard, pretty traditional school, as you can imagine. It's in Boston, not the healthiest city in the world, let's just say. Uh, in fact, when I got there, I remember, I'm like, what are all these people doing smoking? You know, I would, I would see people walking down the street smoking. Like if you were from California in the Bay Area, that was the most uncool passe thing you could possibly do would be smoking a cigarette, right? It's like, And that's the thing in Boston. It's the opposite. It's cool to be a smoker in Boston. Oh, I was shocked. Yeah. I was like, what are all these people doing smoking and going to Dunkin' Donuts and buying trashy coffee and having donuts every morning with their cigarettes, like, oh my word, I was just like a fish out of water, you know? So anyway, I was considered a little bit of a a strange guy in med school. I would like go to hot yoga classes, you know, in the afternoon. And then I had a little Ziploc bag of supplements tucked in my scrubs that I would pull out, you know, on duty at the hospital, take my supplements, uh, making smoothies, things like that. So Fast forward to my professional career then, and I basically help others answer that same question. What would it feel like to be as healthy as you could possibly be? And I give them advice from an integrated perspective, emphasis on lifestyle supplements, checking hormones, you know, eating right, exercise habits, sleep, positive mental attitude, combined with, you know, traditional appropriate helpful concepts of preventive medical care and wellness, like getting certain labs and getting imaging tests when you need it and medications occasionally, that kind of thing. So it's a great life. I'm, I'm living my dream right now, I have to say. I love it. I love the story too. It's, it's funny that you had your supplements in medical school and people were probably looking at, looking at you like, dude, what are you, you taking supplements and going to take hot yoga? That's so weird, man. And uh, a lot of that is from what your mom had taught you, right? It's, it's uh, Maybe when you were younger, you were like, oh my gosh, I have the worst mom. I can't eat all this sugar and I can't play video games. But do you look back and are you thankful for the fact that she didn't uh, let you do all that? Yes, Ben. A hundred percent. I am. Absolutely. I am. And then I became that parent too, right? So I was like, <laughs> oh, we don't do video games in this house. No, no, no. It's just not You'll what we do. You'll thank me one day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Once it, you're done hating me, about 20 years from now, you'll thank me. You, know? you also said, said something that I love, which was that you became obsessive. And I think as a, as a society, we've kind of demonized that word obsession. I, I love that word. I believe your obsessions become your possessions, but it it's, depends on like what you're directing that obsession toward, right? For For me... When I was very unhealthy, I was mentioning before we hit record, I was doing, I was addicted to food and video games and drugs, and I was obsessed with those things, and those became my possessions. But then I got really clear on what you asked: what would my life look like if I was the healthiest version of myself? And then I became obsessed with that, and that now that's what I'm, what consumes me, right? So that word obsession could be a great thing as long as it's harnessed the right way. Agreed. Good insight there. Yeah, absolutely. I think. And a flip side of that, I would use the word discipline. And I like that word a lot too. 
that was one of two core values that my stepfather inculcated in me that have launched me to success as in as much as I can claim that in my adult life, right? He said, there's two key lessons you need to learn. And he just would hammer on these. I'm talking all through high school, you know, especially. And one was discipline. He's like, discipline. He goes, a lot of people think about it. They kind of want to do that. They make a half-hearted plan. They don't get started. Or they get started. They have a setback. They quit, right? Everyone's talking about how they like to lose weight and get in shape and do this and that and become, you know, this and that. But few people have the discipline to actually just get the work done and stay at it. He's like, discipline will set you apart and is a key to success in your adult life. I was like, duly noted, right? So <laughs> that's one of them. And you're right. It's, it's, uh, it's similar to that concept. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Discipline, right? Discipline is, I wore t-shirts that say discipline equals freedom because I, I agree, like your stepdad was right on point. And I was actually having this conversation with my fiance a few weeks ago. She was talking about, and I want to hear your thoughts on this because I had a different perspective than she did we were talking about why people are just not getting results in life. And she was saying that they lack discipline. And, and I made the case, and maybe you have, you disagree. I made the case that everybody's disciplined. They're just directing that in the wrong direction, right? They're disciplined to eat the wrong foods every day. They're disciplined to play the video game, to watch the Netflix every day. So everybody's disciplined. They're just disciplined in the wrong thing. So that was my mindset or my philosophy around that. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, a good way to look at it. I- I agree with both of you. I can see where you're each coming from on that. You know, we certainly have patterns that are routines and things that drive us, things that we wake up thinking about every morning, get excited about, right? And if they're not healthy, then they're not serving us well ultimately. And I think the key concept there, to your point, is to replace that emotional center of yearning and obsession and enthusiasm to replace the unhealthy thing with something healthy. Right. And, and another way of saying that is it's not just enough to say no to this unhealthy thing. You have to learn to say yes to this other thing that is actually more pays off more in the end. Right. So this is the short sighted immediate gratification. But if we just tell people you got to stop doing this, stop doing this, and it's an agenda of no and it's an agenda of discipline, that doesn't get very far as an agenda of, hey, this might not be helping you so much, but you know, it's got some sort of short term emotional payoff, you know, sitting in eating chocolate late at night and watching Netflix. It's like soothing you. It's comfort. I, I get it. All right. You know, and it's okay to have emotional turmoil. We all go through stress. We all go through hard times. We all got issues. Like I get it. But you know what? There's this other way over here that is actually, if you can like jump over this bridge for a minute, you're going to like this a whole lot more because you're not going to wake up with regret. You're not going to wake up, you know, three months from now, people being 30 pounds heavier and talking about, oh my gosh, I got to lose all this weight, right? Like this little coping mechanism over here is getting up early. It's going to the gym. It's going swimming in the morning. It's jumping in the cold plunge pool. It's sitting in your infrared sauna. It's making a smoothie. It's sitting outside getting some sunlight. It's going on a yoga retreat, like whatever. But I can show you this thing over here that ultimately you're going to thank me for later because it's serving your goals better. And you're going to start to love it more because in the end, it's about what we love. As you said, we can love this thing that's sort of completely junky or maybe half-heartedly you know, healthy, or we can learn to fall into love with uh, something a whole lot better. I love the way you broke that down. Yeah. So it's not a matter of like just removing a habit. It's about replacing it and seeing the value in what you're replacing. Because case in point, when you were a kid, they were saying, no Twinkies, no Twinkies, no Twinkies, instead of giving you something else. And they, they, they found you in the middle of an aisle just gorging on Twinkies. <laughs> yes, exactly. Great point. Great point, right? So now as an adult, I don't want Twinkies. I haven't eaten a Twinkie since, you know, probably shortly after that time. Why not, right? I have the freedom. I could go buy a case of these things if I want, right? So it's transformed to my internal sense of myself and what I really like and where my passion in my heart is, right? And I, it's not that short-term gratification. I, I, I know too much and I'm falling in love too much with how it looks and feels to be healthy. Yeah, exactly. Perfect example. What you resist persists, right? So I love seeing like, how do you replace this habit with something that's going to serve you, you yourself better to master that one habit and then you stack it from there. It's a great way to go about it. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted? If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised 
to make you think they're high quality, are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part? This may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store, resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasia loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but wild pasture meats are better for you nutritionally and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and... $15 off your first box. This is a crazy deal and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. Michael, I want to talk about fat loss. I want to start the health conversation on fat loss because um, a a lot of people, they think uh, that in order to lose weight, you just got to be in a calorie deficit. And while there is some truth to that, uh, it's not giving you the full picture. I think it does people more of a disservice just saying, you know, eat less, move more. There's hormones, there's different things at play. So what do you do at your clinic uh, when somebody's experiencing hormone resistance, weight loss resistance? They lose some five pounds, gain it back, back and forth. Like what do you, what are the the things, the common themes you see happening with those patients and what are some ways to overcome weight loss resistance? Yeah, good point. It can be challenging. The first thing to do is make sure their thyroid is adequately assessed and optimized. This is a big deal, right? So to your point, if people aren't losing weight and their diet's really dialed in and their exercise is really dialed in, honestly and truly, then the reason is hormonal, okay? And then tied into that is genetics, which kind of often ties in here with hormones. But basically, if they're doing these top two things right, it's going to be hormonal or it's going to be genetics that's really tripping them up. So getting their thyroid dialed in is the most important thing. For example... T3, the active form of thyroid hormone, directly tells every cell in your body to make more mitochondria and to fire up the activity of each mitochondria in your cell. So it's like taking all the little furnaces inside your cell, the the energy generating centers, and just dialing them up. That's exactly what thyroid hormone does, which is why if you have too little thyroid hormone, you tend to feel cold easily because the blast furnace essentially inside your cell, which is what the mitochondria is, it's not dialed up well. So to bring up thyroid automatically turns up the metabolic output of all of your cells. You will start to lose weight naturally, safely. And it does other things. Of course, people who have low thyroid talk about feeling depressed. They talk about you know feeling constipated, dry skin, sometimes hair falling out. So all that stuff starts to get better. And by the way, many people's thyroid is not adequately managed because they'll just get a simple test like a TSH, if you're familiar with this. They'll go to their PCP. The PCP is like, oh, it's normal. And then that's just the end of the discussion. But meanwhile, they clearly have low thyroid symptoms. And my answer, when I explain that to patients, I say, look, the TSH has a range, all right? And you fell somewhere in this range, but that might not be optimal for you, right? This is like, you know, a thousand people and it's a big old bell curve, but what's optimal for you? 
it's almost like if you thought of the example of shoe sizes and I said, look, we got a range of shoe sizes, ma'am. I'm just going to throw you one and, you know, walk with it. In fact, run around in it. You should be fine. Oh no, my feet hurt. It's too tight. You're in, it's a normal range shoe. Just wear it, right? That, that it would be as idiotic as that. Oh, that's a, that's a great explanation. You're so right, Michael, because that's the gold standard, isn't it? Just looking at TSH, but that's not even telling you much about the thyroid. It's just telling you the communication between the hypothalamus pituitary and the thyroid. And then you have, um, I want you to talk a little bit about testing like all the markers for thyroid. So T4, reverse T3, and what, what that shows. Because I think a lot of people who, uh, I've seen this, they are taking T4, but it's converting to reverse T3. So they're not getting that T3 effect where it's helping the mitochondria produce energy. Could you, could you break down the full picture here, what to test and what, what is happening? Sure, yeah. I'd be happy to, to a degree. Um, so I don't, myself, I don't utilize reverse T3 too much. So I'm, I'm happy to grow and learn more in that. You know, it's sort of a, more of a, a cutting edge concept. There's a little bit of debate about how helpful is it, you know, et cetera. But what I standardly use would be a free T3, a free T4 measurement, a TSH, and then checking for thyroid antibodies as well. Thyroglobulin antibodies, antithyroid peroxidase antibodies, if you're familiar with that. Um, and, and basically the big picture, as you mentioned, your brain is signaling your thyroid. The signaling hormone from your brain is TSH thyroid stimulating hormone. And then your thyroid puts out the thyroid in the form of T4. And that's sort of like a precursor inactive form of thyroid, but that floats around your body and then it gets converted on demand to the active form T3. And that does things like dials up your mitochondrial energy output. Some of the problem can occur at different levels. Sometimes people's brain does not put out enough signal. That's more rare, but can happen. Sometimes you're getting adequate signal but the thyroid is not putting out enough T4. That can happen. For example, let's just say a COVID infection. COVID can absolutely affect your thyroid. It can cause inflammation and tissue destruction, and let's just say irritation and dysfunction of the thyroid, just like it can of your adrenals, just like it can of your testicles and affect testosterone levels. So there are things that can go wrong in the thyroid. Classically speaking, it's considered either a lack of iodine or an autoimmune problem. Those are the two most typical problems that go wrong that mean the thyroid gets an adequate signal from the brain, but yet it's not putting out enough. Then sometimes it puts out enough just fine, but remember it puts out T4 and that's not the active form. And sometimes people have problems converting the active form over to T3. So their T4 levels are great, but their T3, the biologically active form in the end, is not really up to par. They've got sort of a conversion problem. A lot of times that comes down to nutrition. So there are certain vitamins and supplements that have a key role as cofactors, quote unquote, in that conversion process. This is also why sometimes people will be on T4 as a medication, which is Synthroid or Levothyroxine, right? And yet they feel still a little crummy. Maybe, maybe they feel a bit better, but they're still kind of feeling a little bit low thyroid. And that's because we're assuming that all of that T4 will just get converted over nicely to T3, but... It's not happening. Yeah. Not happening. Right. So sometimes you have to give them a product like an Armor or a Nature Thyroid, which is a mixture of T4 and T3, right? Or sometimes you can leave them on their T4 and you just give them nutritional supplementation. There are some really nice multi-ingredient products that I like that help kickstart and uh, facilitate conversion over to T3. You could ask the question, just, just again, theoretically laying the whole thing out, right? You could ask the question, well, if T3 is the active form, why don't doctors just give T3 right away? Why would we be giving T4, right? And the answer is because T3 is the active form, it's very potent, right? And it's, it's hard to get that exactly dialed in right away. So we could just kind of guess an amount of T3, but we also might cause a heart arrhythmia, all right? Or something terrible. So we err on the side of safety for the patient and say, hey, look, let's just give you a lot of T4 and let your body sort it out. Let's give you a nice little pool of precursor thyroid, and then your body will convert it on demand as it needs to its active form, which is a fair enough idea. But as I said, the devil's in the details, though, with the conversion doesn't yeah, always happen. Yeah, you explained it very well. Yeah. The thyroid is kind of like the canary in the coal mine, right? It's like it's going to show you symptoms because something else is happening in the body. It could be COVID. It could be heavy metals. I, I've seen a lot of research on mercury really eating up uh, selenium and also affecting the thyroid gland and creating uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, et cetera. So if you're doing lab tests on your thyroid, please get more than a TSH. And then 
make sure you're working with a brilliant doctor like Dr. Michael Turner, because he's not just looking at the labs. He's also asking the patient, how do you feel, right? Their symptoms are very important to gauge if something's working or not. Unfortunately, most doctors are just looking at the labs. Are they just trained that way? Like what what is happening there? Why do they just not ask the patient? What are the symptoms you're dealing with? A great question. Sometimes I would say there are different reasons centered probably around two points. So the first point would be time, the time involved to have the discussion, to listen, to elicit all the symptoms, right? If you're pressed for time, you're a primary care doctor and your patient wants to talk about five things. And you know, one of the five is their recent TSH number. You just kind of feel, let's say overburdened and you don't, you don't have time to delve into it and do this whole talk. Like I just did that took, you know, five or 10 minutes, but all explanation. Right. But when I work with patients, they love that. Cause I take the time. I explain this stuff. They, they love it, but I'm sure they do. It's rare. Yeah. But a lot of doctors in that clinical interaction, unfortunately with, with the like Mick medicine, fast food medicine concept, you know, in traditional medical systems, it's just the pace isn't there to really want to think deeply or to elicit deeply information from the patient. So that's one reason. That's a good that's term, reason. by the way. I've never heard make medicine before. That's good. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the other reason is comfort and familiarity and confidence. Let's actually use the word confidence, right? So it's the, it would be the difference between an endocrinologist or a well-trained integrated medicine doctor versus a primary care provider, right? So the the you're looking at a lab value, which says the patient's normal, maybe at least kind of somewhat, right? And then you're listening to the patient, they're telling you they're abnormal. So it takes a bit of confidence to overrule that lab, right? And to know, hey, I know what the clinical signs of low thyroid are. I don't care what the TSH is. The patients tell me they're cold, constipated, dry skin, hair's falling out, depressed, sluggish, all this stuff, right? I know that that's low thyroid. So even if the TSH number is roughly in this normal zone, I know that this patient needs something more than that. That takes a bit of confidence. It takes a bit of acumen, as you can imagine, right? It takes a bit of subtlety. And this is important because so many aspects of medicine are like this, Ben. It's not just a discussion of TSH. We're just, we'll just use that as an example, but I'll use an example of an MRI, right? I did a lot of spine and neuroscience rehab in my day. Actually, I, were, I was recruited to work at a neuroscience center in my state of Washington. That's how I ended up here. But the same thing is true with an MRI and the neurologic pain or deficit that the person may be having. Person comes in and says, my back's killing me. I got this constant pain in my leg. It's like electrical, it's stabbing. My leg is tingling, it gets numb, and it's weak. I'm limping, I have to use a cane. Okay, let's get an MRI. We get the MRI. The MRI shows some mild changes, nothing really sim- significant. What do you do with that, right? So a less confident doctor who's not as sophisticated would just say, well, ma'am, gosh, the MRI is not terrible. I know you're probably something's wrong, but you know, a little bit more PT, maybe tough it out and here's some pain meds versus someone who's really in the game will say, oh no, this is a serious nerve problem. The MRI might've missed it because first of all, MRIs are done with the person laying flat. And when you stand up, things can shift and change, right? But number two, even a mild compression on the MRI of a nerve can actually produce a major clinical symptom, right? Because the MRI is just the way something looks. It's not the way it feels. You need the actual person to tell you how it feels. And so in, in the spine world, we know this. We know that the imaging finding does not correlate strongly in many times with the patient's symptoms. And the opposite is true. Sometimes the imaging looks terrible and the patient looks great. You don't want to get over, make too much out of that and start sending them places to do a bunch of things that they don't need done. So this is where you have, to, you have some, some sophistication, some confidence, uh, I guess, is my wrap up on that point. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. You know, that's what that's the sign of a good doctor, a good health practitioner. You're listening to the patient, to the client, uh, not just treating the labs. And the labs could show things that are helpful or it could miss things. I mean, it's really a matter of like how is the person in front of you presenting themselves? And if they're if it's clear that their hair is falling out, their outer eyebrows thinning and their skin is dry, they have trouble losing weight, like those are red flags that there's a thyroid issue going on there. And, you know, on the topic of thyroid, let's stay here for a little bit because I'm in the keto space, right? And I love keto, but I don't teach it long-term. I teach keto flexing, which is my book, Keto Flex. And in the book, I have an entire chapter on why we don't want to do keto long-term because what I've seen with, especially women, but also men, with those who have chronically low levels of insulin, which is another problem, that conversion from T4 to T3 does not happen as efficiently because insulin helps that conversion along with the liver, the gut, and the kidneys. But And then I see these, these thyroid issues with chronic 
long-term ketosis, chronic fasting, which I love fasting, but too much fasting. So have you seen that clinically with your experience? Have you seen anybody come into your clinic doing long-term keto or too much fasting with some thyroid conditions? Not so much, Ben, not so much. I, I'm typically more on the side of encouraging people to consider the idea of intermittent fast, right? Or consider the idea of lowering their insulin, you know, that type of thing. So more initiatory discussions, that's typically what I see. So uh, yeah, to your point, I don't have as much experience with the really long-term heavy-hitting keto people as, uh, as you do, I guess, in your world there. Yeah, that makes sense. And and for those people, like for sure, do keto, do intermittent fast, right? I want to talk more about that with you. But before we get there, anything that you want to mention? So you mentioned the thyroid and how it works, but any other ways we could improve that thyroid function that we didn't discuss already? Well, no, the the thyroid function, you know, it's it's a matter of good nutrition, first of all, so that you have the cofactors like the selenium, the zinc, the vitamin C that are necessary for conversion over to T3. Uh, that's a key part. Other than that, I would say, you know, sleep and avoiding stress because sleep is where a lot of your hormones cycle through. People maybe kind of know this, but I don't think they understand it as much uh, as they should that there's a circadian, you know, rhythm, of course, to our body, but our, it's very much so to our hormones, right? We don't put out the same amount of hormone at all times, 24 seven. And think about it like a very intricate clock, one of those old grandfather clocks or something, some Swiss finely machined clock with all these gears, right? And you got to wind this thing up every so often and then it sort of slowly unwinds, right? That's our hormonal system. In fact, that's our neurochemical system in our brain, neurotransmitters, the whole thing. And sleep is a wind up time. Well, if you're getting crummy sleep, you know, because it's interrupted or it's just short duration or whatever, you don't have as much wind up and then you're kind of getting wound down the next day. You with me? And then this happens and then you're kind of like wound down and then that adds up over weeks, months, right? So Poor sleep will equal hormonal dysfunction guaranteed. Leptin levels will go the wrong way. Insulin, growth hormone levels will go the wrong way. Testosterone, all that, right? So part of getting your hormonal life organized is to get consistently good sleep. This is a huge deal. It's one of the first things I talk about from an integrated medicine viewpoint with people. I talk about the concept of deep sleep and I talk about the concept of really getting dialed in on sleep hygiene. My quick and short point on that would be also to tell patients that it's not normal. It's, it's at least not healthy to wake up in the night. Okay. It's kind of normalized. Sometimes the patients will come in and go, how's your sleep? Oh, fine. How many times you get up? Oh, just two or three. So you consciously wake up and get out of bed and walk down the hall and do some business and hit the button on the toilet and wash your hands and go back to bed like multiple times every night. And that's just normal and fine. I go, no, sorry. You know, good sleep is actually uninterrupted. You go to sleep, the next thing that happens, your alarm goes off, okay? Or you wake up naturally even better. Anything less than that, that wasn't a great night of sleep, all right? So we, we, we have to stop normalizing, you know, oh, I get up two times and let the dog out and, you know, all this stuff. Now, sometimes we have to do some medications that will help people as far as like with their bladder and things, you know, prostates and this and that. But that can be solved. That problem can be solved. I can't tell you how many times I've had people come in and say, oh, my sleep is crummy because I get up a couple times at night because of my bladder. I'm like, we can solve that problem. And then we do and the, their whole world turns around, right? Or their pain. I go, well, let's just give you a little bit of an anti-inflammatory or something at bedtime. Could be naturalistic or could be some ibuprofen or something, but you don't have to let's sit there with an achy shoulder all night. Same thing. Sleep gets better. Hormones get better. But my other quick point on sleep, besides we want it to be uninterrupted, is we want it to be shifted earlier in the night. That's really important, okay? Let's say seven hours of sleep. If you go to bed at 9 p.m., right, and you wake up at 4 a.m., that's seven hours of sleep. But that's not the same as if you go to bed at 1 a.m., and wake up at 8 a.m. You with me? Not even close. That front-loaded nighttime sleep is way more restorative, way more healthy. So again, sometimes people have to get some lifestyle changes in place. They're used to staying up late, watching TV, this and that, falling asleep in the living room and the lazy boy. Finally, by the time they go to bed and get some real sleep, you know, it's like 12.30 or 1, and then they just wake up late and they think that that was great sleep. It wasn't. It's it front-loaded very much. Again, it has to do with circadian rhythms. Think about what time does it get dark? right? Like before we had industrial lighting and the industrial revolution, all this, and we were living with just natural light and fireplaces and, you know, fires, what time does it get dark? It gets pitch dark about, right? You know, it depends on your latitude. Let's just say 5.30, 7.30, somewhere in there. People go to bed shortly, not after that, right? I mean, it's natural. And then you're going to wake up when it gets light. What time's the sunrise? 
you know, look it up, right? So that should be, that's basically your natural cue for how we should be sleeping. Uh, I, I, yeah, I love that you took a deep dive into sleep. Yeah, it's so it's it's fundamental to to your point, Michael. So if you're in the habit of going to the gym at 9 p.m. at night, uh, you're doing it wrong. Uh, mix that up and get to bed early and maybe go to the gym in the morning because you're going to get more of that deep sleep growth hormone surge and all the amazing things that happen, uh, which typically you want to go to bed just a few hours after the sun sets uh, that were designed that way, the suprachiasmatic nucleus which is that circadian um, clock we have, is designed for that. The artificial light disrupts that. And I'm pretty good with my sleep. And I and I teach this to my students. I have the Aura Ring. Are you familiar with the Aura Ring? I do. I just ordered my replacement one uh, last week. I'm missing my Aura Ring right ah, now. Lost so you have it. one too. I yeah. lost it swimming in Hawaii, uh, which it was cool, but, but it was a big downer when I came out of the water with my ring gone. So anyway. Well, that's a good place to lose it. If you're going to lose it, might as well do it in Hawaii. Yeah. So, you know, I'm looking at my deep, my REM, and you're right. You know, there are some times where I see those white spikes and I wake up and I'm wondering what happened there, but we're not designed to have those white spikes of interrupted sleep. If you watch any of my videos on social media, you always see me with glasses on. And I always get the question, hey, why are you wearing those glasses? These are called blue light blocking glasses, and I wear them to protect my brain and my focus. You see, we are bombarded with stimulation, especially with junk light from your computer screen, your phone, fluorescent lights, and the brain has to filter that out. These glasses, what they do is they filter out those lights for you so your brain does not have to do the work. I equate this to having a web browser open with 100 tabs If you had 100 tabs open on your computer, that computer is going to run slow. But if you were able to eliminate 99 of those 100 tabs, and now you just have one tab open, that computer will function better. This is the same thing with your brain. So there's different types of blue light blocking glasses. There are computer glasses that you would wear during the day when working with screens and under artificial light. There are light sensitivity glasses that you would also wear during the day with screens and artificial light. And then you have the blue light blocking glasses, which I wear at night, two to three hours before I go to bed, which promotes hormone health, helps your body produce melatonin, and aids in better sleep. My go-to is from Bon Charge. They have the science to back it up. They look super cool. The glasses come in non-prescription, prescription, and reading options. Glasses for every need. Bon Charge also has other amazing products such as low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, EMF slash 5G protection, and 100% blackout sleep mask that I take with me when I travel all the time. The greatest thing about them, all backed up by science. They gave Keto Camp Podcast listeners a 15% off coupon code. All you need to do is head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout, no space in between, to get 15% off your entire order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code. Go check them out and let's get back to this episode. I want to hear your thoughts on people who are eating uh, too close to bed and what that does to lower their deep sleep scores, lower their heart rate variability, and actually slow down fat loss. What are your thoughts of eating too close to bed? Yeah, right. Very negative concept, as you're mentioning there. Absolutely. One of the things I say is a calorie is not always a calorie. It depends on when you consume it, okay? Because it has different hormonal effects that it kicks off depending on when you consume it during the day. And so a McDonald's hamburger at 9 p.m. is not the same as a McDonald's at 1 p.m. It's not, right? And then the short answer is once it's past dark, your body's in hibernation mode. It's not an energy burning mode. It's in hibernation mode. Biochemically, it's primed to just be hibernating and be low energy. And if you cram a bunch of energy in there, it's going straight to energy storage. It's as simple as that. Again, sometimes people don't have to eat a whole lot differently. They just need to shift the timing of it, right? They need to, that some different behavioral cues. They're used to just pulling out, you know, the kettle corn and watching Netflix at nine o'clock at night. And that's just killing their, their intention to lose weight. They could eat the same bit of kettle corn, but do it at 1230, you know, in the middle of the day and take a walk afterwards for 20 minutes, something like that. Right. So yes, to your point, eating once it's dark is basically murder on, you know, the idea if you're trying to lose weight for reasons related to insulin, you know, namely. And the other thing I also mentioned is cardio or the idea of burning calories 
you know, through exercise is also similarly structured. You're going to get more benefit from cardio during daylight hours, right? When your body is primed to be burning out energy. In fact, I like the idea of doing cardio on an empty stomach. That's one of the first, in a, AKA fasted state. That's one of the first things I tell patients. I'm like, if you're serious about weight loss, what you're going to do is you're going to get up in the morning and you're not going to eat breakfast. Instead, you're going to do your cardio. Why? Because when you ate dinner the night before, those calories washed through your body as they got digested, fair enough, over about three to four hours. You went to bed. Sometime in the middle of the night, your body switched to fat burning mode, right? So when you wake up first thing in the morning, your body's in fat burning mode. So here's the idea. Why ruin it by putting something in your mouth? The minute this goes in your mouth, your fat burning mode is done. And now you're dealing with this. Right? So why ruin it by putting something in your mouth? Instead, accentuate it, run with it by doing your cardio. So we, you skip breakfast and within that 30 or 45 minutes you would have devoted to making, eating, cleaning up breakfast, you're doing your cardio. You're jumping on your spin bike or something else like that. right? And then you just delay your first meal of the day and now we're into a nice intermittent fasting pattern with our cardio getting done in the morning. That is way more healthy than to be eating, you know, all day and then maybe try to do a little bit of cardio, you know, eight o'clock at night or something like that, like an hour after your dinner or something. It's, it's not the same. Yeah, powerful tip right there. I, I'm a big fan of these fasted cardio workouts. I, I'll do two hours of basketball in a fasted state and it really just ran. I'm really metabolically flexible, so I could do that. But if you're just kind of getting starting out, then a walk, a jog, or something that you mentioned, like an elliptical, something that's uh, moderate. It doesn't have to be high intensity, does it? It could just be like a 30-minute walk, can it? No. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. So that works. And uh, so if there's one tip you got from this in terms of fat loss, it's work on your sleep, number one, and then avoid eating uh, too close to bedtime. Give yourself at least three hours of fasting before bed. But the earlier you could bring those calories, even if you're not even changing, let me ask you this. What if somebody is listening to this and they're following a standard American diet, which I find hard to believe if you're listening to my show, but hypothetically, you're following a standard American diet, you're eating a whole bunch of fast food, and they change nothing except that they're giving themselves five hours of fasting before bed. So they're just going to eat more of their calories earlier in the day. They're not changing what they're eating, but they're eating it earlier in the day. Will they lose weight and get results just doing that without changing what they're eating? Yes. Yes, I, I've seen it numbers of times. There's theoretical reasons to think that and experiential reasons to show that, yes. Simple answer, yes. So imagine you combining that with a low-carb, higher-fat, higher-protein sort of approach, aka keto with intermittent fasting. So you mentioned you have individuals, patients that come in who are insulin-resistant, type 2 diabetic, etc. We know that 88% of the population at the very minimum of American adults have some sort of metabolic dysfunction according to that University of North Carolina Chapel Hill study. Why do you love um, an insulin-friendly diet like keto combined with intermittent fasting for these individuals? Well, it's outstanding because it helps lower your circulating insulin levels. So let's talk about the idea of insulin sensitivity versus insulin resistance, which is, I think, kind of what you're keying in on. And this is worth talking about and helping explain to you know your audience and something I take a lot of pains to explain to patients working with me. So the metaphor that I use is a high-performance engine, okay? We want your body, metabolically speaking, to function like a high-performance engine. You don't have to flood it with a lot of gas. Just a little bit of gas has the right air-fuel mixture, right? The right spark, the right ratio, and it fires off and you create a lot of power. That's what we want. We want your body to run on small amounts of blood sugar, small amounts of necessary insulin to get the job done, right? And everything is very sensitive, and it responds well. So we don't have to flood your system with insulin to get things done, right? That's the idea of insulin sensitivity. We want a body that is sensitive to insulin so that we can get by with lower circulating levels of it. Well, why? What, what does that have to do with fat loss or weight gain for that matter? And as you know, Dr. Fung, for example, has talked a lot about this, Jason Fung, Dr. Lustig, Robert Lustig from UCSF, awesome doctor as well. A lot of good stuff on YouTube about this. Um, they go a lot into insulin and leptin, which is kind of what we're talking about here. But with insulin, we want your body to be sensitive to it. And insulin is a double-edged sword. It is helpful, but it is also harmful at the same time, right? It is helpful because it helps clear your sugar out of your bloodstream where we don't want it circulating and building up, right? Excess sugar for too long in your bloodstream begins to react chemically and damage the lining of your blood vessels. This is the basic driver of diabetes, right? Excess blood sugar in circulation is very negative. So insulin helps move the blood sugar out of circulation. Fair enough. That's its necessary job. However, 
what does it do? It brings that blood sugar into your cells and then it sends a biochemical signal to your cell to create fat, okay? Insulin sends a strong fat-creating signal. So if you have high levels of insulin, you have a high levels of molecular signaling that says store fat. Another way of saying that is it is impossible to lose weight if you have high circulating levels of insulin. It is impossible because your body is receiving a signal 24-7 that says store fat. And you can try to fight that. You know, you can eat, you know, cabbage and you know, water and this and that, but you're going against your biochemistry if you got high insulin because it's sitting there selling your body, sending your body a signal to store fat. So we want to lower insulin levels and we want to do that by creating a state of insulin sensitivity in which your body gets the message, hey, I don't need to secrete that much insulin in order to get the job done. That's great. So then the million dollar question is how do we boost insulin sensitivity, right? And this is what you're getting at. Intermittent fasting definitely will do it. You know, low carb, low sugar diets, more protein, more healthy fats. Definitely uh, exercise boosts insulin sensitivity. And then certain supplements. There's an important enzyme called AMP kinase. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard of that. This is worth knowing about a little bit if your patients want to dive into it. AMP kinase, AMP, and then also just with the letter K, AMP K, a lot of times. This is a su- super important regulatory uh, molecule as regards energy output. And so anything that stimulates AMPK is very good as far as we're concerned. It's going to work to lower insulin levels. It's going to work to lower blood sugar. And certain supplements stimulate AMPK. One of my favorite is berberine. Okay, Berberine very strongly stimulates AMPK pathways. So does resveratrol. So does alpha-lipoic acid, by the way. So does something called EGCG, uh, epigallocatechin gallate, which comes from green tea. So you can start to give patients these supplements as well as do the lifestyle things and hormonally turn the situation around. I love that. Great explanation. And then fasting also helps activate AMPK as well. So you combine all that. Maybe you take some berberin or um, some, what was the other one that you mentioned? Resveratrol. Resveratrol. Alpha-lipoic acid. Alpha-lipoic acid. Does apple cider vinegar have that same effect of AMPK? I know that it lowers postprandial glucose, but is it in the same mechanism? I don't know. I need to look into that. I'm about familiar with it in the same way that you are. When I think of apple cider vinegar, I think of lower postprandial glucose levels, but I don't know what it might do to AMPK. It's a good question. Yeah, it might it might act differently. I'm not sure. So we'll, we'll figure that out. So yeah, that's the solution. Like if, if, and Dr. Fung is brilliant. I love, he's a friend of mine. He's been on the show. He endorsed my book, which is awesome. He has the great analogy of putting on headsets and listening to music all day long you're going to have to increase the volume to get the same effect. And after a few months, if you keep listening to a nonstop, you're going deaf. That's exactly what you're saying here with the receptor sites. They're going deaf to insulin. So you have to keep pumping it out. So the solution is dial down the music, eat less carbs, eat less often, get the sensitivity back, aka lower the music and your hearing comes back. And that is the solution that you mentioned. Yes. I love that. Yeah, we're on the same page. So, okay, last question is this. I talk about a supplement. You mentioned a few great supplements. We didn't talk about this one yet. It also has been proven to be anti-inflammatory. I would venture to guess and I would hypothesize that it also will help lower postprandial glucose. I've seen it help with sleep. I've seen it help with um, raising oxytocin, serotonin levels. Dr. Joe Dispenza has seen this with brain scans as well. It's called vitamin G and I call it vitamin G because it's the practice of gratitude. I call it vitamin G, doc. So my question to you is, what are your thoughts on a gratitude practice? And then what are you grateful for today? Oh, cool. What a, what a great question, Ben. That's a, you, you surprised me with that. That's cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you had me going. I'm like, what was you doing? Uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, you make a great point, which is our perspective, right? That we bring to life every day. You know, classically, described as glass half full or glass half empty, right? Now, this is a choice. One of my favorite quotes is an Abraham Lincoln quote, kind of folksy. He says, I reckon most people are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. There's a lot of truth in that, right? Like we can look at the same situation, but we can decide actually to be happy. We can decide to count our blessings, right? We can decide to be grateful for what is there in our lives, for what we do have, instead of disgruntled and embittered about what we don't have, right? It's a, just a different mindset of looking at some things. And so 
This is extremely conducive to health and wellness overall. The mind-body connection is extraordinary. I talk about this with patients quite a lot. An obvious example is anxiety, right? If you're anxious, it's going to have physical manifestations. Your blood pressure will go up, right? Your blood sugar will go up. You'll feel a sense of muscle tension. You'll feel a sense of fatigue. You know, it's siphoning off, you know, other neurotransmitters that should be created because you're just stressing so much, right? Your cortisol levels go up, like all of that. So we know that the mental state of anxiety will drive some physical maladies, but let's use the opposite. Let's look at it from a positive viewpoint. What if we had the mental state of calmness, the mental state of gratitude, the mental state of acceptance of challenges instead of just beating our head against them, right? What physical changes would that produce? To your point, many, right? Many. If we're interested in being physically healthy, we've got to get a hold of what's going on up here mentally because the connection is extraordinary and um, it's free. It you know has no side effects and nobody can stop you from doing it. The pharmacy can't get at, you know supply chain issues, none of that, right? <laughs> That's like, right. Yeah, you can't overdose on it. Can't like, overdose there's no upper limit. It, dog yeah. can't eat it. You know whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you can choose to look outside and see the birds and see the sunlight and see the trees and realize that we're in the middle of a glorious, I don't know what you call it, experiment, experiment or, or experience, let's just say, you know, I mean. Yeah, a spiritual experience totally. in, a, in a human body. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's very metaphysical. Um, just, just as an example, there's two anecdotes that come to mind. One is there's a very famous picture. One of the most famous pictures of uh, photojournalism of all time is called Earthrise. Earthrise is the very first picture of the Earth that was taken from space, okay? And I think it was taken like with one of the first Apollo missions or something like that. But it's the first time we ever had a camera in space to turn back and look at the Earth. Before, we always had a sunrise or a moonrise, but the picture Earthrise is extraordinary because you see the Earth coming up. It's looking like it's the moon, but it's part of, it's that globe, right? And it's coming up into the screen. And every time I look at that picture, I get emotional because Ben, what do we see all around it? We just see blackness, just emptiness, just space, right? This empty space. And then there's just this beautiful orb sitting there that has perfect conditions to nourish and sustain life. And here we are all together on this orb, right? Like there's nowhere else to go, okay? There's nowhere else that's hospitable that we have the technology to find and to go to. So here we all are on this lifeboat, let's just say in the middle of the ocean, right? Now, are we going to appreciate each other are we going to make it great or are we going to make it a crummy experience, right? Are we going to destroy it and destroy each other and, you know, trash each other's sandboxes or are we going to play together nice and make the best of it? Because here we all are. We are on this lifeboat in the middle of space. There's no place else to go. Think about it. Let it settle in, right? And when I think about that and then I zoom down to me waking up and looking out the window like, yeah, I'm on Earthship right here, you know, and uh, this is amazing. I'm floating through blackness of space for bazillions of light years. I can't even understand that, but here I am with enough oxygen to breathe today and, you know, enough food. This, this is extraordinary. We got photosynthesis going on and I can reach out and grab a peach off of a tree and eat it and stay alive. Like, wow, you know, get amazed, get thankful. I love that. Yeah, that's, uh, it's a choice, isn't it, right? One of my favorite quotes from uh, Bob Proctor, who's actually this gentleman, he passed away last year, was a mentor of mine. He said, he said, faith and fear both demand for you to believe in something you cannot see, you choose, right? So the fear would be the negativity, the pessimism, et cetera. But the faith would be the gratitude, the optimism, and exactly what you just said. So what is the final question is, what are you grateful for then, Michael? You mentioned a few things, you know, having oxygen, a peach tree, but in this very moment, what's the first thing that comes to mind when it comes to your gratitude? Um, well, I'll say the first thing that comes to mind right now is actually the satisfaction and the contentment I feel from my profession, from my role in life right now. I know that I'm contributing to the well-being of other people. I'm leaving the world a bit better on a daily basis, God willing, and certainly hopefully by the end of my life that way. So I feel like I'm living kind of in tune with my highest desires and highest sense of purpose, right? Another way of saying that is, in my career, if I got independently wealthy somehow, if I had a rich uncle that just wrote me an inheritance check, I would still show up tomorrow to be Dr. Turner and do integrative medicine. That's, how you, know, that's how you know you're living on purpose. That's with your how purpose. you know. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm most grateful for right now. I found my niche in the world of how to contribute. That's a great feeling. I love that. That is something to be grateful for. I feel the same exact way. Like if somebody just wrote me a check for a hundred million, I'll still have this conversation with you and do what I'm doing. That's how you know. It's and I think that lack of purpose, which is an epidemic, is 
the result of why people stress eat and are obese and all these health issues out there. So when you could find that purpose, like Michael has illustrated he has, and I definitely have, then there's so many health benefits to that. So Michael, I've got vitamin G for you. I really enjoyed today's conversation. Your website is michaelturnermd.com. Where else do you want the audience to go? Oh, thank you. Uh, another place people might be interested in is my Substack, which is Dr. Turner, all one word, drturner.substack.com. That's an integrative place where I put my podcast episodes and uh, different wellness articles that I write. And so uh, many people have given me good feedback about that. Awesome. We'll put that in the notes. Everybody go check out Michael's work. I'm grateful we had this conversation. Thank you for the work you do. And hey, we'll do a round two in the future, man. There's a lot more to cover. Great. Sure. Thank you very much, Ben. I enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Michael Turner. He's terrific. I loved it. He, he's really incredible. You can go to his website, which is drmichaelturnermd.com. His substack is drturner.substack.com. We'll drop links down below. We have show notes as well down below. And uh, with the video format of today's interview and all Keto Camp podcast interviews can be found on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Keto Camp. Share this with a friend. Leave it a rating and review. And I want to I just say thank you so much for spending part of your day with Dr. Michael Turner and myself. Hey, I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.